This episode is brought to you in part by Thomas Nelson, publisher of The Joy Challenge. Discover the ancient secret to experiencing worry-defeating, circumstance-defying happiness. Written by pastor and best-selling author Randy Frazee and is available everywhere audiobooks are sold. I was two months from my wedding and my father, who was always my spiritual person, said to me out of... I would say nowhere other than probably a nudge of the Holy Spirit. I just really think you should pray about whether or not you're supposed to marry him. Mm. I don't know if you're supposed to do it. And I'm I'm like totally blindsided. But so I go in my room and I pray and I say, God, this is the person that I've chosen. If this isn't the person that you have chosen for me, will you please end it? Because I can't do it. And this is a true story. Within two minutes, my phone rang and it was my fiance and he was calling to break up with me. This is Where You're From, an origin story podcast at the intersection of faith and culture that digs into the influences and experiences that shape who we are today. Join us as we gain insight into the Bible's wisdom for all, regardless of where we're from. Hey, y'all, this is Rasul Berry. Thanks for joining me on Where You're From. This week, I'm pleased to share with you my conversation with Heather Thompson Day. Heather is an associate professor of communication at Andrews University, a sought after speaker, author, and host of the Viral Jesus podcast. You can find out more about Heather by clicking in the show notes or by visiting whereyoufrom.org. That's where, Y-A, from, dot O-R-G. Please join me as I ask Heather Thompson Day, where you're from. Oh my goodness, that's a really interesting question because I'm from nowhere and everywhere. I was the first baby born in this small town called Berrien Springs in 1987. So my birthday is New Year's Day. I got like a, two gold coins and I was on the news. I, I was the first baby in 1987 in Berrien Springs. And my father had come to this little town um, to go to a seminary. And they were from New York City. And then I spent the rest of my childhood in a van. I mean, we lived, our home base was always Berrien Springs, Michigan, but almost every single weekend, probably three weekends a month, my family got in a van and we went wherever my dad was speaking that weekend. He was an evangelist. And so we traveled all over the country and then internationally. And so my family is, I would say, unusually close. My husband would probably second that. We are mm. very, very close. And I think a lot of the reason for that is because we grew up in a van together. <laughs> a van down by the river? That's right. <laughs> <laughs> That's cool. And so Berrien Springs, tell me a little bit about it. Oh, it is a town with two stoplights. Mm. And that has a pickle festival every summer Mm. where you can, there's like a pickle toss. Whoever can throw a pickle the farthest wins like a medal or something. Um, It is just a super tiny town. But what is here is the only thing that's here. And that's Andrews University, Mm. which is the university that I currently teach at, which is also the only university I swore I would never go to. (laughs) Because it's the university in my town, but look at look at us. 
that is yeah I, and i'm sure there's a story behind that which we'll get to yeah yeah, yeah. and so you mentioned your family was close because you know that can go one of two ways when you spend that much time together yeah. in a van traveling around that could either bring you very close together or further apart and i know from you know you've even written about this that it did draw you together but tell us a little bit about maybe your siblings and those who were also in that van with you. Yeah. So at that time, it was me and my sister. And my sister and I are totally different, which is fascinating because we grew up in the same van. But yeah, we just traveled from church to church. And so I remember being very, very young and always being really emotionally convinced of the presence of God and that God was real. And mm. I, I honestly think some of my swing towards academia was to learn things logically. Like I, I, I've always had a very emotional experience with God and I'm very passionate about reading as much literature as I can to kind of satisfy the, the knowledge part of me that's not so, the logical part of me that's not so emotional. Wow. So what do you remember about those travels? Like, just put us in the van with you. Yeah. You guys are driving. What was that like? So the biggest thing that I remember was just always really, I'm so lucky. And I'm so lucky because of how some of the other things in my life went. But I was so lucky to have very genuinely authentic Christian parents who it was never my dad. He, he was on Broadway. But when it came to his faith, he was not acting. I mean, he was so deeply to his core convinced in a personal God that I would say it deeply impacted how I've experienced God ever since. Mm. And even when I had issues, because by eighth grade, I was one of the first kids to be expelled from my tiny two-stoplight town Christian school. And... That definitely impacted me, but the imprint of seeing my dad's authentic relationship with God, I was able to separate who God was from what my church experience looked like. Mm. And mm. I think a lot of that had to do with my parents. Hmm. That sounds beautiful. And you you also just dropped something else that's pretty fascinating. I don't know too, how many evangelists were also on Broadway. <laughs> so yeah. it sounds like he has a pretty, pretty, pretty broad range. Yeah. So he was like 17 years old when he left home and was in Jesus Christ Superstar. Actually, so one of his conversion experiences, he was um, Simon in Jesus mm. Christ Superstar. And he always says that the opening song for him, like he was just incredibly moved every single time. And then somebody left some like religious literature in a taxi cab in New York City. And that's mm. how he started his journey into Christianity. Wow. That's amazing. Uh, to hear. And I do want to get to the middle school. But first, there was another <laughs> thing that you revealed um, in your book where you talk about in an elementary school okay. being in a very unique club or there was a club hey, that you I, weren't I, I in, wasn't but in that, you, <laughs> that you found out about. And I'll see you tomorrow in, in your book. So tell us a little bit about that and how you found out and what was that like? Yeah. So I... And I'm going to own, I think I was a very obnoxious child, probably in a lot of ways. I was really loud. And so I understand that that probably put a target on me. But there was an I Hate Heather Club at the elementary school that I was in. And it was a, 
it was a diverse group made up of different races and ages and mixed gender. So that's nice. It brought all people together. Um, but so a lot of my experiences, I can remember many times, I always tell this to my students. I remember getting secret admirer notes. And so I'd be going back and forth with the secret admirer note. And then it would be, then like they'd say, meet me at the fence. And then I'd go to the fence and it's like a group of girls laughing at me. I can remember one time, this was mm. would have been summer going into sixth grade at summer camp. I had this boy who I just thought was the cutest boy at camp. And come to find out, he thought I was cute. And so we're passing notes. I mean, this is like an entire summer long extravaganza. The last day of camp, this goes on all summer. The last day of camp, um, he tells me to meet him at the willow tree. And I go to the willow tree. And it's, again, a group of uh, this one was mainly boys who are standing there laughing at me saying, you thought he liked you all summer. He doesn't like you. We made him pretend. I mean, just... Lots of experiences like that. But you want to know what? And this is also, I think, fascinating because I used to always truly believe up until probably the last six years. I went through a lot of my life saying, you're resilient. You are so resilient because you had these bullying experiences. And yet um, I'm, I'm in general a pretty confident person. And then I realized I'm not resilient. I just had really good parents. Mm. In communication theory, we call that the looking glass self, which is each person becomes a mirror. Mm. around you. So the greatest mirror in my life, when I would ride my little pedal bike home and cry in my bed, I can remember, I can still see my dad coming down the hallway and saying, what's wrong? Mm. And I'd say, they made fun of me again. They're laughing at me. And he just would say to me, Heather, I'm just, you're going to be somebody. Mm. I know it. I believe it. Forget them. Forget them. And I really believed him Mm. because of how much he believed it. Wow. I just got to say, I don't care how loud if your voice was amplified (laughs) to the tune of a megaphone, like the level of cruelty involved in those situations is just uh, it's it's hard to believe that 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 happened. Like, I mean, so when did you know there was an actual club that this wasn't just like meanness randomly? Um, So I think that part, I I can't remember for sure if I found Mm. that out later, because in college, I hung out with somebody from my elementary school and he was the one kind of delineating for me. Like he, we stayed up like most of the night and he was like telling me all these different things from elementary school that the club would do intentionally to try to hurt me. And I will say, I have situations sure where I was a victim, but I also became like a horrible bully by middle school. Mm. Me and my best friend, Jewel were so, so, so mean. Um, Mm. And it became like a defense mechanism, right? Right. So praise God, the Lord redeemed me from that. Amen. Amen. And for incredible parents that help. Yeah. You know, although I will say too, that that did take some resilience <laughs> um, in the midst of that to move forward. So, so okay, you get from elementary school where those you know, in pretty rough situations, and then you talk about this circumstance in middle school. Yeah. You know, because of course, almost it sounds like out of the frying pan into the fire. Yeah. What was that like? Now, that experience was very difficult. And it's funny because I, again, thought I was so resilient. And I I realize now only through therapy the last several years that I think a lot of what I do with my life has to go back to middle school and Mm -hmm. being expelled and trying to prove to people that I am worthy. I deserve to be here. Um, So I was expelled from my Christian school. And I can remember. 
And and you want to know what? Like, I will say this too. My parents, <laughs> when I told them I was expelled, you would think that I would get in so much trouble and be grounded. But they like stormed into that school, you know, because hmm. I wasn't actually like, you. I'm not selling dope, right? Like I wasn't doing anything other than like talking out of turn in class. And th- I won't get into it, but there was a teacher who was inappropriate who I, because I was always very vocal, I vocally challenged that inappropriateness. And really that's why they wanted to get rid of me for whatever reasons they may have made up later. It was that I was exposing things that they didn't want to be exposed at that time. Mm. So I can remember sitting with my principal when he was going to expel me. And he said, Heather, sometimes one bad peach spoils the whole crate. And so we have to remove you so that we don't contaminate the other peaches. And so I'm 13 years old, feeling extremely suicidal at this point, because again, I have these perfect, wonderful parents who I just feel like such a disappointment. Not that they were ever saying that to me, but my school was and my community was. And yeah, it was just a really, there's no redemptive thing to that. It was just a really dark time of my life where then this is probably not the best thing to say on a Christian show, but then I went to public school and everything changed. I Mm. never got in trouble again. I was told I wasn't loud. I was a leader, like all the things that I was being shamed for at my, and this is a small town again, small town church school made me like editor of the newspaper right? Asking questions, speaking out of turn. Hey, you'd be good on the newspaper staff. Why don't you come work here? They they found ways to validate those pieces of me, which is interesting. It's more than interesting. <laughs> and I think it gives us opportunity for folks to draw on because I think while many of us can relate to the difficulty of middle school, there's less of a, a common experience to actually be expelled in a school. And then on top of that, a Christian school that's supposed to be explicitly about helping us become more like Christ. So in your book, It's Not Your Turn, you talk about how that experience helped you to see that words have power. Yeah. Because using your voice, finding your voice was something that had an impact. What What do you remember about discovering that, that words have power? Mm. And I think even back then they, they used to say, oh, if Heather would just use her power for good. And mind you, like the things that they were mad at me about was like they had planned a pizza party and then I'd be like, I don't want pizza. And then a bunch of other kids would be like, we don't either. And then the school would be mad that they had planned this pizza party that then nobody ate the pizza. Like that's the drama that I was in. So I want to zoom out there a little bit. Um, but that was when I think I started to realize that one person can make a deep impact in a little tiny society Mm. that I was in. Mm. And yeah, I just never forgot that. Now at that point, I was still always writing in my little journals and my diaries. I love still reading them now, like all the things that I was experiencing back then. I always, always wanted to be a writer. But I think that was one of the first times that I realized that like what I say out loud matters. Hmm. I mean, and that's a powerful thing to discover. You know, let's lean into a little bit like you're someone who had seen this powerful model of your parents and their faith 
the way that that was distinguished for you between the power of the God that your parents worship versus the foibles or faults of people and yeah. who set up rules. How did you think about or how do you think about the tragic irony of the fact that you were embraced and accepted in your public school experience in a way that you weren't like, what was the theological truth or sociological reality that was being missed that allowed that ironic circumstance to happen? I really think part of it was really about gender. Mm -hmm. I think in the Christian school, girls are supposed to be a certain way and I wasn't fitting that. Mm -hmm. And so there was more flexibility on that in the public environment that I went to. I will say, looking back, I think God was incredibly intentional mm. over every step of my life because so a lot of the ministry that I've done is in secular spaces. Mm. I, I taught for a long time in secular schools. Everything you do doesn't have to be a Christian, but you must remain Christian in everything you do. That's been a, a deep held belief for me. And so in secular schools, I was doing ministry. Some of the my fondest memories of ministry are things I was doing as a, at a secular school. And I don't think I would have been able to navigate that environment had I not gonna, gotten expelled. Hmm. And so it's interesting that I think, I don't know. I don't know. I almost in my case think God may be hard in their hearts towards me to remove me. Hmm. Because looking back, I wouldn't have it any other way. Hmm. That's such a dynamic. And, you know, later on um, in your book, and I'll see you tomorrow, you actually reference how frequent it is that people who experience traumatic circumstances actually can look back and see yeah. something of value that they learned about themselves or that that situation helped them to have. And it sounds like you've experienced that even personally. Yeah, post-traumatic growth. Hmm. What I love, so words mean things, right? Words have power. We have to talk about things like post-traumatic growth because more people experience growth from trauma than PTSD, hmm. which if we don't say that, if we don't name it, I just think people don't even know what's possible and what's yes. available to them. And it narrows the story of trauma to only include lifelong struggle, mm. right? Like even when you hear yeah. the word trauma, it just automatically viscerally takes you to a place of, oh, you, this thing that happened to you long ago has only had, you know, bad outcomes for you for the rest. And of course, there's things that we need to continue Absolutely. to work through. Absolutely. But it is like, like you said, by just even speaking the reality of post-traumatic growth, it opens up ways in which we can see how the hand of God may have been in our life, even in the diff most difficult circumstances. Yes, I agree. Mm. So, okay. So you're in the high school and what are some of the things you get involved in other than, you know, I guess your book. <laughs> uh, I was yearbook editor, newspaper <laughs> editor. Um, that's when I, I really started, I think in high school was a moment for me to feel like I might actually be able to be a writer. And here's the reason. There, I went to the Michigan, all my friends thought I was such a nerd. For the, none of my friends were a newspaper. 
Okay. This was like only me. And I, my new, my journalism teacher was like, Hey, why don't you apply to go to the Michigan Interscholastic Press Association? They do like this little conference. The school will pay for you. Why don't you apply? And so I submitted one of my articles to that. God bless this teacher for even seeing me and giving me the opportunity. And so there was like 1500 applicants and I got second place. Mm. With this article that I wrote about being biracial. So I had written this little investigative news piece because there was no box for me to check every year mm. when I would sign up for school. And so I was, I, I started calling around saying, who's making these forms? And so I document this journey of there not being a box for multiracial children to identify with. And um, it ended up getting second place at Michigan Interscholastic Press Association. And that was just a little turning point for me. I think it was the first time that somebody from the outside world, besides like a teacher, right, validated my writing. Something mm. that I so deeply always wanted to have validated from being seven years old. Mm. Wow. And tell us a little bit about uh, Samantha Higgins. Yeah. So that was like the main character in a book. That I never published, but here's what I love about that book is it taught me that I could write a book. And I wrote mm. that in high school. I wrote that one and another one called Diary of a Freshman. Never, I will never publish them. They're probably, they're not good. Right. But it did teach me that I could finish a project. Mm. So it was a stepping stone for me. Yeah. I just love that part um, of the story that <laughs> I, I do. It, it was really touching to see that you had saw the vision of telling a story in a fictional account of this person, this biracial girl who's wrestling with identity and, and the way that the world kind of has expectations on her. And you're like fleshing that out in this fictional account at 15 years old. I just thought that was the coolest yeah, thing. <laughs> I remember that's where I say, in what color is God? Yes. And the mom says, when God is clear, mm. so that when you cry, you can't see him holding you. Yeah, I remember writing that in high school. And I would always just go take it to my dad. I mean, so my dad, you know, he was in Broadway. And so he was a singer. All my dad's family is musicians. Mm. And I'm, I always have felt so bad because me and my sister cannot sing. And so I would always try to sing. I wanted to be a part of my dad's shows, you know, I like wanted to be in it. And he, because he was in show business, he's very brutal. Like I'm seven and he's like, no, that's not your gift. You can't sing. Stop. Like, <laughs> no. But I remember he would say, but hey, the song you wrote, that's good. Hey, start leaning into that. You're a good writer. Mm. <laughs> I love that. He was like, look, I, yeah. I can tell you what your strengths are. This and isn't your for you. This isn't for you, sis. <laughs> So, you know, in this theme of school, which sounds like it's been a really pronounced right? set of highs and lows, you kind of take this journey. Where do you go for undergrad? Um, I went to the only school I swore I'd never go to. So I went to um, a school in Indiana on a track scholarship my freshman year. Um, by my sophomore year, I had a I had really bad shin splints, so I wasn't going to be able to run track. And so I had to transfer to Andrews. University, which is not about, it's a wonderful place. Honestly, it's the most diverse university in the nation. It's a, it's a beautiful place. I only didn't want to go because it's in my hometown right. and I desperately wanted to get out of the two stoplight town, but right. my mother was working there. And so I had subsidy. So that's why mm. I ended up coming here. 
but to go rewind back in which by the way i, I lived in indiana for oh, a season out. as well yep and uh, for eight years i lived in fishers indiana which is right outside of indianapolis okay but you you wrote in your book that you never felt more misunderstood than freshman year in college <laughs> can i tell you what it was my freshman year that i never felt more so because sure, i'm from Berrien springs michigan which is a again a small town but it has the most diverse university in the nation mm. so my christian experience was always a very diverse Christian experience. Mm. And then I went to school in Indiana and I was not adequately prepared for the understanding that my understanding of Christianity was not like universal. Mm. And so I was one of few kids of color at that school. And it, I just think I had different ways of communicating that were misunderstood. Mm. I had... I was from a really small denomination, so that was often misunderstood. I just felt like it was the I Hate Heather Club. Mm. Wow. It probably wasn't that dramatic, but it felt yeah. <laughs> it felt that dramatic to me. Um, so it was, yeah, it was a really difficult year. So out of that, you like you said, you go back to the place that you, or you go to the place you thought you would never go, and now as a student, as someone who had been, probably been around and you know, as a younger person, just, hang, you know, with your parents, what was that like going to Andrews as a student, especially coming off that difficult experience that you had freshman year? So again, this is where I, I've been in therapy and I see now <laughs> why I made some of the choices I made, because I think that's when I started saying, I started just feeling like, okay, I can pour myself into academics and I can become worthy. That was my thought process. I will prove everybody wrong about me. And so I did 23 or so credit hours a semester. I graduated with my bachelor's in three years. I went straight to my master's degree. And then after that, I went straight to my PhD. I never took a summer off from 2005 when I graduated high school till I finished my PhD in 2017. And... So my college experience was not a good college experience in the sense that I lived at home. I didn't have like friends on campus. I was in school from 7.30 in the morning till about 7 o'clock at night. And I was really, tr I knew I wanted to get a PhD and I just wanted to work hard. Hmm. And so I had a very like singular focus hmm. in school. And that was prove them wrong subconsciously. And I think that's a, interesting place to go into what a lot of what you write about and talk about includes, which is, you know, the statement that you make, relationships make us thrive. Yeah. Relationships give our lives meaning and purpose. Tell me how you got there, because it sounds like the journey that you're talking about in terms of your approach before that was not at all leaning into this aspect of relationships being necessary. I think that's how I got there, is mm. I lived an entire life up until, um, I don't know, maybe 25, really just focused on myself mm. and how to, I always deeply wanted to take care of my parents. You know, I think I've, I'm a millennial. I think a lot of, I talked, this is like a millennial thing, I think, where we want to make enough money, not just for us, but to provide for our, our families our parents. I, I had that burden. I wanted to make them proud because I felt like I'd embarrass them as a child. Mm. Right. So, um, yeah, I think that's, uh, so I, I wasn't, I, I was willing to do whatever I had to do to get to where I needed to go. Right. And what happened, I think is that 
I might be going too far ahead, but I did all the right things and nothing worked. That's why I wrote It's Not Your Turn. I was, mm. I had made all the right choices and I had all the grades and the right internships and experience and doors still weren't opening for me. Mm. You know, yeah, I think that is an important reality. One of the things I love about your writing is I had a sociology background. That was my okay. degree in Africana studies. So I'm a little bit geared toward surveys and statistics and you use a lot of them, yeah, which is, I, I think is very, makes your writing very persuasive and compelling and accurate and true. And so one of the things that you point to is the reality that many millennials struggle with comparison and struggle with I, it, it almost just feels like, I guess, I don't know if you go back to the recession or the bubble bursting, all those things that like the world that they were told, if you do these things, yes. you will get this outcome never developed. Yes. Tell us about that experience on a macro level as it relates to, you know, the generation of millennials in general. Oh, I think we have an entire generation that is deeply trying very hard to be important. Mm. And I can... I feel so called. That's why I work with young people. I love teaching in higher ed. I understand that. And mm. I am grateful that I feel honest enough and humble enough to to admit that that has been me for much of my journey, truly up until probably the last five or so years. Mm. And I got to a point where at COVID actually was really a big part of this where I realized, you know, at the end of the day, if I die, my job will replace me. Mm. I've seen it during COVID. One of our professors died and they were filling his classes within 24 hours mm. and posting the job posting within a couple weeks. And you will spend, you will pour into a career and I think that's okay, but it cannot be where you find your worth or your fulfillment. And I've realized that the most, the biggest picture, the most important thing to me is the people that I've gone through. That's why I wrote, I'll see you tomorrow. It's the people that I've gone through life with. At the end of the day, if I die, you know, people might tweet or put a post on Instagram. Oh, so sad. Right. But the only people that are actually really going to carry that grief with them is my family and my friends. Mm -hmm. And why am I not being intentional about those relationships? As intentional, I hope, as I've been about my job. Hmm. Ooh, so much uh, there. And I think one of the things that really marked, I probably would say millennials were probably the most talked about generation in the history of talking about generations. What do you think in that discourse was often mischaracterized or misrepresented about millennials? Um, I think we always mischaracterize and misrepresent how we got someplace, right? So a lot of times we'll, I'm just going to look at Gen Z right now because that's where I spend a lot of my time because I teach higher ed. A lot of the conversation is on um, they're so sensitive, right? Or pointing out whatever perceived weakness, but this, everything that they are experiencing has been given to them. They didn't build this. Mm. The world that they're existing in is the world that was built and handed to them. Right. And, and is a, is a, is a world that none of us have ever experienced at that age group, except for them. Mm. 
And so it's so easy to say, well, we would have done it. Well, you don't know what it was like to grow up with your entire life online. I mean, I, I'm 36 and still I had a diary and it had a lock and it had a key and I hid it. This is an entire generation of young people who have grown up with their diaries posted online and the more hits, the better. What are the ramifications of that? Mm. Mm. Yeah, it always uh, strikes me as odd because as a Gen Xer, that was like the first thing, you know, Gen X, that that didn't even sound like a neutral term. It was like, you know, this negative kind of sentiment. What is this unknown generation? And they play video games and, (laughs) you know, all of this stuff. That was what, what, and I just remember always thinking like, you do realize that we were raised by another generation. Exactly. We didn't raise ourselves. Exactly. <laughs> so aren't all the critiques that you're making of my of the generation that whatever you're talking about actually a reflection of those who gave them the world and the tools that they are now living and using in? So that's a little bit of a thing that I just always remember that it's a better posture to seek to learn and understand and even to celebrate the things that they get right than it is to simply just critique, you know? And so in that context of relationships, again, in some ways you seem like an unlikely advocate, you know, for it in light of some of the difficult times that you are so transparent and vulnerable about. And, and one of them in particular that stuck out is a certain relationship that kind of looked like you were going to be going and it's going to be lifelong and, Mm. and then ended after, you know, some prayer and some direction, I'm curious about if you could kind of tell us about that circumstance and and what you learned from from it. Yeah. Well, I I want to say I am very passionate about trying to lay down in the gaps that I fell in mm. so that somebody else doesn't. Yeah. And so again, I feel like a very likely person to talk about these things because of how many gaps I fell into over those Mm. exact same issues. So I tell my students all the time, don't, I'm telling you to go to Spain, take the year and go to Spain, go to Argentina, learn the language. Don't worry about graduating a year later because it will change the rest of your life. Mm. I'm telling you to do what I didn't do. Hmm. Right. Learn from the mistakes I made. Oh, so I was, um, and this is another one. I think it's fascinating because one of the biggest things I probably that I've connected with my female students on now over the last, I don't know, 12 years or so I've been teaching is this calling off my engagement. When we come back, Heather will share how two unexpected phone calls within minutes of each other would change the course of her life forever. That's coming next on Where You're From. This episode is brought to you in part by Pittsburgh Theological Seminary. Pittsburgh Theological Seminary students are grounded in faith and formed in community. PTS students are preparing for ministry with Master of Divinity, Master of Arts, Doctor of Ministry, and Certificate Programs. Begin your Master's or Certificate Program in person or online. Financial aid is available. Visit pts.edu admit. What's up, Where You're From listeners? You like free stuff, right? Well, check this out to hear how you can get my favorite set of earphones, Power Beats Pro. I use these when I work out, cook, and when I'm listening to my favorite podcasts, like Where You're From. How can you enter to win the giveaway? Simply fill out our brief survey by clicking on the link in the show notes. Once you do that, 
you're entered to win. It's just that simple. So won't you do it right now? You'll have until November 7th, the day of the last episode of season five to enter. Thanks for listening to where you're from. Peace, y'all. Hey, y'all, before we get back to our conversation with Heather Thompson Day, I wanted to share a quick teaser from our next episode with Michelle Sanchez. This is where you're from. I'm inside 17th floor of a skyscraper, and suddenly there's papers and papers and papers. That's the first memory. And then, of course, you know, uh, we learn very slowly but surely, oh, my gosh, you know, um, we're under attack, and this horrific thing is happening. So we... um, after we were evacuated and then I'm walking in my bare feet, you know, because my heels weren't going to do it, walking my bare feet over the Brooklyn Bridge on my way home, the city in flames behind me, you know, and thinking to myself, man, if I had to meet God today, would I be ready? And realizing that I wouldn't be. I knew the Lord, but I also was like, what am I doing here? <laughs> you know, working, working here. Why am I here? doing what I'm doing. And it was because I didn't have money growing up. I was so desperate to succeed. So I chose the one career that I thought would provide all of that prestige that I was I was lacking my whole life and the money. Now let's get back into our conversation with Heather Thompson Day on where you're from. I was two months from my wedding and my father, who was always my spiritual person, said to me out of, I would say nowhere other than probably a nudge of the Holy Spirit. I mean, he had never vocalized any negativity about my fiance up until this moment. And he says, I just really think you should pray about whether or not you're supposed to marry him. Hmm. I don't know if you're supposed to do it. And I'm, I'm like totally blindsided. But so I go in my room and I pray and I say, God, this is the person that I've chosen. If this isn't the person that you have chosen for me, will you please end it? Because I, it's two months before my wedding and I can't do it. And this is a true story within two minutes of saying, amen, my phone rang and it was my fiance and he was calling to break up with me. And this in and of itself, wasn't that we weird. We were kind of a breakup to makeup couple, but the timing of it being right after I had prayed this prayer and we had had no fights like this whole week, that whole month, probably. And we're two months before a wedding. It was just, I knew God had just interceded in my life and answered me. Mm. And so of course he called trying to get back together later, but I just, I, I didn't do it because I knew that God had answered me in that relationship with so many red flags that I had missed. I ended up um, getting a restraining order Mm. on him. I really, truly, from the depths of my soul, think had I married him, I'd be dead because there were a lot of um, red flags I missed because the first time I didn't do what he wanted was when I saw a totally different person. Mm. So I love talking to my students who think no one's ever going to know me like him. I'm never going to love anybody again because I know that feeling. Mm. Again, that's a gap that I fell in and tell them that that God will be faithful and there is more available to you than you can even even imagine right Mm. now. So if you feel like the Holy Spirit is telling you don't do it, oh my goodness, obey, obey that voice. And you got to tell us about the next call that you got. Yeah, this was just do crazy. we want to go there? <laughs> so I'm laying in my bed and I'm I'm asking God, please just have mercy on me. Please just have mercy on me. And I'm sobbing and my phone rings and I, I'm sure it's my fiance calling to get back together. 
And so I answer it and it wasn't my fiance. It was the voice of Seth Day, who is my husband. Now he was also my boyfriend in sixth grade. And I saw, I didn't, so I dated him in sixth grade, seventh, he, so I just want you to know when there was an I Hate Heather Club, Seth was like always down for me. He was always the one saying, they're just jealous. And when people would say, she's so loud, he'd be like, she's hilarious. Like he was just always like a fan of like my personality, which Mm. just means so much to me. We jumped on the trampoline all the time in sixth and seventh grade. And then his family moved away. His brother ended up getting cancer. His brother was a dear friend of mine and he passed away of cancer when Seth was 17. Tyler would have been two days after his 19th birthday. So a lot of trauma happened for him that made him not ever want to come back to Berrien Springs, the two stoplight town, just because it was a, a trigger for him of his brother's cancer and other issues. So, cause I remember I would say to Tyler, why doesn't Seth ever come visit? And he was like, Seth hates Berrien and says he's never coming back to Berrien. So on, when I transferred from the school in Indiana To the school I swore I'd never go to. My first day, I saw Seth sitting in the financial aid office. I was going to visit my mother. And I ended up giving... I was like, oh my gosh, it's Seth Day from sixth grade. I gave a note to my mom to give to him with my number. And he never called me. Well, then I Mm. saw he had a girlfriend. It's fine. We're all good. You know, do you? I see him across campus. We wave. We would talk periodically, but nothing romantic. I end up meeting somebody else. A year after that, I get engaged. A year after that is when I've called off this engagement. I'm crying in my room. And on that very same night, Hmm. Seth Day from sixth grade takes out that note that I had given him two years before and calls me on the very night that I end my wedding. And him and I have been together ever since. Love that story. It so is a true novella. story, isn't right it? Right there. <laughs> um, but it also speaks to something else. And I brought it, it was important to bring up because you both co-write this yes, book yes. together and take turns in each chapter. I love the audible version because you can actually hear your voices um, in addition, you know, get the sense of the personality and, and everything. And why was it important for you to co-write? Oh, it was really important to me because when I told Seth, I have to write a book about relationships. This is, this is what everybody's missing, especially after COVID where we're cutting off the very thing that we most need. And my husband, we're, we are so opposite. I can't even tell you. He just said to me, Heather, yeah, it's not that easy. Hmm. And I was like, what do you mean? (laughs) And he was like, it's not that people don't want relationships. It's that we go through experiences that make building them feel really scary and really hard. Mm. And I said, oh, okay, I will you write this book with me? I already knew he was a good writer. I said, will you write this book with me? Because I don't want to tell this story from only my perspective. I'm an optimist. I always look for the rainbow. I always look for where was God? And my husband is the total opposite. Mm. His Instagram is original sad king. We call him the sad king. He is most comfortable sitting in the pain of a situation. And I'm the one that's like, hey, maybe we should, maybe we should get up now. You know, Mm. he's like, it's, it's sacred and it's okay. Mm. And this hurts and Mm. I want to grieve it. So I wanted that perspective on a topic that would be so delicate for a lot of people, hmm. such as staying in relationship when some of us have been really hurt by them. And it really comes across. There's a weight 
of reality to the tragedy of relationships and even those that are closest to you, like, you know, he talks about his father or, yes. or like, you know, you talk about the Christian community, but there's also this hope in this brilliant belief, not just belief, scientifically yes. established, yes. you know, evidence of yeah. the reality and the importance of community at some point, you know, saying maybe this is even what we were made for. Yeah. You write this, and I just thought it was so beautiful. What if you aren't just a person? What if you are a plan? It isn't just about who can make you feel less lonely. It must also be about who you can make feel more connected. Yes. In your experience, right? And so kind of bring these two things together. Because on the one end, you talk about the power of words and how much you love words as a writer. And in the other aspect, you talk about the power of community. What's the relationship between that? Why is community so important you know, to you? And why do you think that's something we're missing today? Mm, because if you talk to people who have really been through something, when you say to them, how did you get through that? It's always with somebody else. Hmm. We can survive the worst of experiences when we have people carry one another's burdens for in doing so, you fulfill the law of God. When we have Christians who are truly living out what it means to be a relationship builder, to carry somebody else's burdens as if it's your own, we can survive things you thought you would absolutely never be able to get through. Mm. And I'm deeply convicted of that. And I also think we spend so much time. I just read a study and I, I wish I could cite it for you, but somebody just sent it to me the other day. This is this is wild. So they have a new study that came out that said stress and gratitude cannot coexist in the brain at the same time. Mm. So when we are able to refocus our thoughts into what we're still grateful for and shift away from what I still don't have, it can make all the difference. And it actually, your brain is not able to experience stress. Mm. Wow. And I think some of the best way that we do that is in a relationship with each other. I know my life has been held together by like two to three people. Hmm. And I love the fact that you shout those people out uh, in your book. And it's so clear that you recognize you are because that you know we are together. Absolutely. You mentioned this this little sentence, but I thought it was so beautiful. Heaven is a small town. I love <laughs> that you noticed that sentence. Because I love, I'm just telling you, I have it down in my notes. It's like a future book one day because I love that sentence. So I'm glad that you noticed it as well. Oh, uh, yeah. It, I, I'm glad I did too because it's beautiful. And as somebody that grew up in a big town and lives in New York City, <laughs> um, break that down because I, I don't. I want to make sure I get all yeah. the nooks and crannies of what you mean by that. So where that came from, honestly, I, it was a text I sent to my husband because we had just moved back from Denver. I had just spent a few years feeling um, invisible, and th that had some good parts to it. Sometimes I want to be really invisible, right? <laughs> there were some good parts to it, but there was also a lot of loneliness, and I, I just think this is really true, especially of our generations, because everybody's moving away from their families to pursue careers. We're in essentially unsafe environments because we don't know who has our back. Mm. 
right? And so a lot of people are experiencing this. And I really felt it in Denver. I, I, I just constantly felt unsafe. And so I have this moment where I come back, I, I moved back home and I moved home because my father's health is poor. And I told you my family's unusually close. So I really wanted to be here for my dad, but also for my mother who's going through this with, with her husband. And I'm about to go to breakfast at this small town diner um, that I go to all the time. And I walk in and right when I walk in, the waitress, and she actually owns it too, her name is Shirley. Is like, Heather, where have you been? I haven't seen you. Mm. And she was like, where were you the last couple of weeks? I was like, oh, my kids were sick. She was like, well, you know, we miss you when you don't. She goes, you want the usual? I'm like, yeah, thanks. I sit down. Somebody over there is talking to me about the housing market because we were looking for a house at this time. Then somebody was low on coffee and another member in the restaurant got up and got the coffee part and just kind of went around the whole restaurant pouring coffee. And I just sat and I looked at it and I said, I text my husband. And I said, heaven is a small town. Mm. It is a place where when you walk in the room, people know your name and they recognize that you've come and yeah. they missed you when you weren't there. And if there's something to be done, if somebody needs something, anybody else, it doesn't even have to be my job, will get mm. up and help you because this is ours. Mm. This is our community. And you really get that, I think, in small town environments. I, I love that. And it and it tells this story arc and it shows how transformative the experience has been for you from trying to prove who you were and your value based on your performance to being just embracing of the fact that I'm part of something bigger than myself. I'm part mm -hmm. of a community. And that's where I anchor my identity from. That's just such a beautiful journey. And I think it actually relates to you know, this other piece, and this is something we have in common, this podcasters, yeah. uh, where you talk about viral Jesus and the value of even finding connections for those who not necessarily are in small towns that the story doesn't end there for them, that they can still find value and connection with those who maybe they've only met on the screen. Tell us a little bit about viral Jesus and why you started that and, you know, what you hope people get from it. Viral Jesus is a podcast that I do that essentially just my, my whole hope, and I'm, I'm a communication professor, I just want Christians to be more intentional about their communication online and off. But I had so many people that were mentoring me and they had no idea. They were mm. mentoring me online. And I just think that that is really amazing. I think I have learned so much recently about the Holy Spirit and how God can work and move in ways that you would never think are possible. And yet, until it's happening, until I genuinely feel like I see my relationship with God differently because of Beth Moore's Twitter. That is wild mm. that we can impact each other through a, a screen, through a device. And I'm also really passionate about people just being faithful with what's in their hand. Mm. Not what you wish God had put in your hand, but what is actually in your hand. And all of us tend to have a phone in our hands. So how are you, are you using it in a way that is bringing you glory or God glory? Are you using it in a way where people feel more aware of what they don't have or are feeling hope, right? Like how are you using what God has already placed into your hand? This is where you're from. I'm Russell Berry. And remember, it's not just about where you're at. It's also about where you're from. 
This show was produced by Ryan Clevenger, Mary Jo Clark, and Jade Gusman, and was engineered by Kevin Burgess. Also want to thank Tamika and Jenny for their help in supporting and promoting where you're from. Thanks, y'all. Where You're From is part of the Voices Collection from Our Daily Bread Ministries. This episode was brought to you in part by the Areopagus Podcast. Two clergy of different traditions, Father Andrew Stephen Damick and Michael Landsman, discuss encounters of historic Christianity with other religious traditions. How do we engage with those who believe differently? Listen wherever you get your podcasts.